This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Uh, today's podcast uh, episode is, is really fun. It's going to be a really fun one. I have with me Dr. Jennifer Lackey, and we're going to be talking about her new book, uh, The Epistemology of Groups. Um, before we jump in, I just want to give a shout out to all the Patreon patrons. You guys are awesome. Uh, a couple of you a couple more of you joined um, this week, and I really appreciate that. For the Patreon supporters, you guys can get uh, all the episodes early access. Uh, when I record them, I put them up. Uh, if not, you can get them. I, I put out two a week, so you can get them as they come. Uh, another way to support the podcast is to subscribe on YouTube. And um, above and beyond, go to Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star review and a comment. A lot of you guys have been doing that lately. I really, really appreciate that. Helps the alg- algorithms and all that crazy stuff. Um, so without further ado, let's jump in with uh, with Dr. Lackey here on the epistemology of groups. Dr. Lackey, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Uh, thanks for inviting me. It's really a pleasure to be here. So um, before we get into to the book, uh, I'm just kind of curious, how did you get into philosophy uh, generally? And then how did you come to specialize in epistemology? Yeah, so, um, so I, I think I became interested in kind of deep, kind of thought from a very early age. My mom went back to college when I was uh, quite young, probably around three or four. And uh, we, I would wait outside her class, you know, her college classes waiting for her because, um, you know, that's, we just had to kind of sit there and wait, my siblings and I. And, um, you know, when we would be on our way back home, uh, she would get in the habit of telling us all about what she was learning. So we heard about Freud and I remember her reading, you know, kind of Thomas Hardy books and her going through the whole stories with us. So I think from a very early age, um, it became quite comfortable to think really deeply about um, a broad range of issues. And I, and I think I kind of took that with me uh, when I went away to college. I was a declared psychology major, but my very first semester in college, I took a psychology class and I took a philosophy class and, and immediately recognized that philosophy was my home. Mm. Um, I declared a philosophy major shortly thereafter and, and, and you know, you know, went on to, um, to, to go straight to graduate school after my undergrad. Um, I took an epistemology class my junior year. And, and again, it was almost kind of like an immediate um, connection with that material. So uh, all of this happened quite early on when I was an undergrad. Okay. Well, that's so cool. Well, so as you mentioned in the book, uh, not a lot of attention has been given to the epistemology of groups um, and and lies, group lies, things like that. So, how did you ever even get get started thinking about the epistemology of groups? Well, I, I think one thing that's really interesting um, that I, I think I was only able to see when I took a step back from the book project was how much group lies were really motivating that project. I think in many respects, I kind of start off the book project talking about group lies, and I end the book project talking about group lies. So. I think one of the things that 
um, has always been of interest to me is bringing making epistemology relevant. Mm. I think there's a lot of epistemology that's really quite abstract, and many people who are not philosophically trained would not only have difficulty following what is going on in some of the debates, but also seeing why they matter. And I've always been drawn to the area of epistemology called social epistemology. So uh, my dissertation was on testimony. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always been really, you know, and I'm writing right now a book on um, the uh, questions at the intersection of epistemology and the criminal legal system. So I've always been really drawn to um, epistemologies, applied social relevance. And I think I got really interested in the topic by, um, you know, really wanting to have a framework for understanding how we can hold groups responsible. So the project really got off the ground by thinking about all of the ways in which institutions, you know, governments, um, you know, universities, um, you know, corporations, um, you know, pharmaceutical companies, how they can um, interact with individuals and bring about a lot of different kinds of of benefits, but also harms, and how we can hold groups both um, morally culpable and also praiseworthy for their actions. And we really do need an epistemological framework for that. We need to be able to understand when groups lied to us, when they made an assertion, when they knew something, when they believed something. And when I started thinking through how to hold groups responsible for their actions, I was really shocked by how little philosophical literature there was exploring these issues and providing a framework for being able to um, assess groups and their actions in that sort of way. Yeah. And you made a a really interesting point on uh, another podcast, uh, New Books in Philosophy. And you said, uh, we've been lied to by groups probably more than individuals. This was Mm -hmm. so interesting. At first, it it took me, uh, it took me aback. But then you said, if someone lies to you a lot, you're probably not keeping them around. Right. But these corporations are here every day. We're going to BP for gas all the time, and right. they, they lie to you all the time. And so I all thought that was such a such a fantastic, uh, just short short little argument there that um, we are being lied to by groups often. And so, like you said, this isn't an abstract uh, ivory tower type thing. This is something we need to think about if we want to hold them accountable and and hopefully stop being lied to as often. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, throw in some of your favorite, you know, kind of corporations or um, and, and you'll see, you know, kind of just a litany of, of articles and lawsuits that have come up, you know, kind of Philip Morris and, and BP is one. And, you know, there's just a, a lot of, of cases. I mean, um, you know, Pfizer has done a lot of, rec- you know, good recently. Right. But if you Google mm-hmm. Pfizer, there's also a lot of multimillion dollar payouts for um, you know, very harmful behavior on the yeah. on the part of Pfizer. So, um, I think that we really de- do need to have a framework um, for being able to hold groups responsible for this kind of behavior. Yeah, uh, that was what was so interesting. Um, you do really emphasize the the practical application here. I thought that was really interesting because there was no talk of like ideal groups or anything like that. It was all actual groups, and you gave tons and tons of examples. I think that was really. Um, I, I like the speculative uh, abstract stuff I, just as much as anywhere, maybe more, but I thought it was really helpful to have practical um, applications for these. Uh, another interesting thing about what you're doing with group epistemology is in holding corporations responsible, you're taking the epistemology route. And I've I've seen more kind of debate and argument around uh, holding groups responsible from 
philosophy of mind and it gets into really tricky, weird stuff about extended mind thesis and mm. do they have a group mind or a hive mind or something? And, and it gets really, uh, your incredulity goes up real quick. Uh, mm. Likewise, maybe in um, action, uh, action theory and, and, and free will type stuff. So I thought it was really interesting that you took the, epistem- you're an epistemologist, but the epistemology route seems more believable. It seems like we can buy it a little bit better without getting into kind of crazy, the crazy philosophical speculation. So uh, another thing I just really appreciate about your book, yeah. Yeah, and I really wanted to come from an angle where this is a topic that philosophers can make progress on. And, and, and as I, and you know, there are kind of some abstract arguments in the book, sure. but I also wanted to be very, very clear that um, this is something that is happening in our daily lives all the time. I mean, there's a, there's a tremendous amount of litigation involving groups, you know, institutions, corporations, co- you know, kind of um, companies, um, universities, and also that when you look at how we adjudicate those cases, we invariably invoke very epistemologically loaded concepts. Mm. And so um, we're, we're already doing this. And so what we need to do is ensure that we have a proper framework for grounding what we're already doing yeah. in many kind of, you know, kind of socially and practically relevant aspects of our lives. Yeah, that's a great point. So I had um, Kasim Kassam on recently talk about one of his old books, uh, I have it right here, the, the Possibility of Knowledge. He talks about how possible questions, so that's just right there in my mind. Mm-hmm. But when I was reading your book, I thought this seems like uh, you're, at, you're answering a, a how possible question, how is it possible for groups to lie. And then you, you um, discount and, and refute other accounts uh, that aren't yours because they can't really uh, account for group lies. Does that, does that sound right? Is that a, a fair assessment of, of what you're getting at? Yeah. I mean, I, one of the reasons why I said that kind of, I start with group lies is because it's really group lies that got, be, that convinced me personally that mm. groups have beliefs in a substantive sense. Okay. I mean, when we talk about groups believing something or knowing something, um, I think that there's a temptation to think of that talk as being kind of metaphorical yeah. or a loose talk or, you know, really it's just um, talk that's re- ultimately reducible to talk of individual states. And one of the things that convinced me that groups have beliefs in a robust sense is my um kind of reflecting on what it means to say that a group lied to us. And we really can't make sense. I mean, one of the essential components that even people, you know, kind of even philosophers who deeply disagree about the nature of lying agree upon is that lying is essentially connected with belief. If I lie regarding the question whether P, either I believe that not P, or at a minimum, I fail to believe that P. Yeah. At a minimum, right? Yeah. And so we can't make sense out of a group lying to us without us understanding what it is for a group to have a belief in a robust sense. So I really became convinced that groups have beliefs by 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 just having kind of a first premise, groups lie. Mm-hmm. We can't make sense out of groups lying without groups having beliefs. Therefore, groups have beliefs. Yeah. So I came to the whole project by a simple little argument that starts with a premise that groups lie. And so given that premise, um, it became really important to me to also provide a framework for understanding what it is for a group to lie to us, given that at the time that I wrote the the book, there were no existing accounts of understanding group lies. Yeah. 
Uh, and that, that brings up another point about um, about bullshit um, in the Frankfurt sense, right? And so for those who don't believe me, there's a book on this. It's a tiny little book. You might think that Frankfurt is bullshitting with this tiny little book, but it's actually a really good book. And I like that you also, you brought up that account. Uh, you, you, you said um, that your theory has to account for group lies and group bullshit. And group bullshit is, uh, they don't really care about the truth or falsity of their assertions. Uh, it's just, they're, whatever is expedient for them. Is that a, a good assessment of, of bullshit in Frankfurt's case? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, and, and, and Frankfurt kind of very famously points out that in many respects, bullshit might be even more pernicious than lying because both the truth teller and the liar have to care about the truth. The truth teller to kind of hit the target the liar to avoid the target, right? Yeah. Um, but the bullshitter just doesn't care about the target at all. Um, and there's a sense in which the disregard for the truth um, is in a way kind of deeper or perhaps more pernicious for the bullshitter than it, bullshitter than it is for the liar. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, one of the things I show in, in my book is that existing accounts of group belief cannot accommodate group lies um, and neither can they accommodate group bullshit, both of which I think are extraordinarily important for us to be able to understand uh, group accountability. Yeah. Um, okay. So be, uh, I want to I want to take you uh, into the book, but um, one last thing: do you, do you think we need motivation for premise one that the groups lie, or do you think everyone just kind of we all kind of know that we've been lied to? I wonder if if an unlimitedist might say that's just a metaphorical sense. When we say groups lie, we still need to pick out the actual individuals who, who have lied to us. Or do you think it's just, no, we all know that groups lie to us. We've all been lied to before. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great question. I mean, I, I really do take that premise as something that we all accept in the book. I don't spend a tremendous amount of time arguing for it. It really is in many respects, a starting point for me. Um, I mean, I think that you know, if you if, if I were hired by my employer and they had, you know, kind of the people that I was working with in HR or, you know, kind of like the dean and, you know, kind of various other people had 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 made certain promises to me mm -hmm. um, at the time of trying to get me to sign my contract. And, and then it turned out that they they knowingly had no intention of satisfying those promises. Um I mean, sure, I could pick out like this person in HR and this associate dean and maybe this assistant dean. But I think there's a much more kind of compelling case for saying like my university lied to me, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's yeah. like my employer. And a lot of these people are just cogs in a very big machine. Maybe some of them weren't even aware of what they were doing, you know, kind of because um, a lot of institutionalized really do kind of come, they're very, very top down. And so a lot of kind of participants in the lie or in the deception are really just that sort of cogs in a machine, right? They're just kind of busy kind of doing their, their, their you know, their work um, without fully understanding the role that they're playing in this kind of much more systemic or institutional level deception. Um, and so I think kind of trying to accommodate lies or, or broader forms of deception um, by just looking to individuals misses something deeply important when we think about the systemic level of some of these kinds of deception. Um, I mean, I think that, um, you know, there are, I mean, one of the things that I find really fascinating in the, um, in the 
when you look at kind of the way that a lot of these sorts of cases are handled in, in the law, at least in the United States, is that you find these two different ends of the spectrum. Yeah. So you find some cases where a corporation will say, look, this was just a couple of bad apples. Volkswagen took this approach recently, right? Mm-hmm. It was like three rogue engineers. You know what I mean? Three. That's it. Right. Or three. Yeah. And, and that's it. That That's what accounted for all this, this massive, massive, massive um, scale of deception um, at Volkswagen. And they, and, they, and many, they put something in the, in the uh, exhaust pipe or something where it, it said that that's right. you were going to pass a missions test, but it, it actually didn't. And right. like no chance that this was three rogue uh, bad apples, right? That's right, right. But that was Volkswagen's stance, right? This was just three. We're firing those three. Volkswagen itself, like we're, you know, we're we're in the clear now that we're we're you know we're we've gotten rid of those three rogue engineers. But then you see, on, on, in some cases, the opposite approach, where um, they will say, you know, a corporation or a company will say, we're not going to really disclose the names of any of the particular people who were involved in this. This is really just a company level or a corporate level. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of problem. So, so, so give us a fine, and our employees will go on doing exactly what they're doing. And that also seems problematic, right? Because mm-hmm. sometimes you have these very high level people um, in these, you know, corporations or these just kind of other kinds of institutions um, who are then able to move from place to place and continue this sort of broad level deception um, that inflicts tremendous harm on on, on individuals. And so w- one of the things that I hope to really encourage in thinking through these issues is that, you know, sometimes individuals are responsible, sometimes collectives are responsible, and we need to be able to distribute responsibility across both individuals yeah. and groups. Yeah, I think the second one you used maybe national semiconductor. That's, that's right, yeah. And yeah. I, I thought that was so into such an interesting case because it was it's like this united front kind of thing. And it yeah. sounds great probably if you work there. Hey, our company's right. got our back. But also right. if you did something criminal, uh, you wouldn't punish a company the same way you would punish an individual. It wouldn't make sense. Right. You don't no, send a whole can. company to jail. That's right. That's but right. And, and exactly. so it's actually really problematic on both of the extremes. Um, do you is are those good analogies for uh, inflation and deflation? Is that a good time to, to jump in there? In my mind, I thought of Volkswagen as deflation and semiconductor as, as inflation. I mean, that's really, that's really interesting. I mean, you know, in, in a broad sense, I mean, um, the deflationary inflationary distinction, um, usually at least the way that I use it in the book, um, applies to like phenomena, like group belief, group knowledge, group justification. And what we see with the national semiconductor and the Volkswagen contrast is more this framework used at the level of responsibility. Ah. Um, which is which is the, my starting point, right? That's the motivation for the project. Yeah. Um, but I think you're exactly right that um, applying the inflationary deflationary framework um, to the idea of responsibility does really end up, you know, kind of with the national semiconductor and the Volkswagen contrast. Um, but but the inflationary deflationary distinction I tend to use with respect to very specific group phenomena like a group belief state right mm-hmm. and what is that and the inflationary theorist is going to say group belief is something that's over and above um, the beliefs of individual members um, it's it's kind of groups have you know kind of these states you know on their own mm-hmm. and the deflationary theorist is going to say no gr- group belief just really is. Um, should be understood in terms of the individual 
you know, believing states of, um, of group members. Yeah. And, um, you know, on, on the deflationary side that, you know, I think it's maybe a stretch to call eliminativist deflationary theorists, but there are people who are just like, look, it's just, just metaphorical talk to right. use the idea of group states. And then there's more like a reductionist view, which says it's not just metaphorical. It's just that group states are ultimately reducible to individual states. And, a, a reductionist would be in a, um, a deflationary, a deflationist, right? That, that, that right. makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think of, um, I think I, I kind of got into philosophy through philosophy of mind. So I, I always try to use some of those hooks to hang stuff on. And inflationary to me seems like kind of a uh, emergence. And it's like, there's this new property that emerged out from all the group members and mm. none of the group members have it equally. Uh, but it's this new emergent phenomena. And then um, deflationary is like supervention. And it's like, Okay, uh, you can't have the group thought without like the strict supervening on the individual members, so they all have to have it. Um, does that does that sound right? Does that does that sound fair? Um, I mean, so with respect to the emergence, I mean, it's interesting because I mean, I think that when you when you look at a lot of the work in the epistemology of groups. Um, a lot of it does not get deeply, deeply, deeply into the metaphysics of right. how to understand these states. Um, so, I mean inflationary views in epistemology tend to be justified by virtue of what's called di divergence arguments. Okay. And really what these arguments um, purport to show is just kind of intuitive cases where we would say that there's a group level phenomenon, but no individual member plausibly instantiates this phenomenon. So I discuss a lot of cases like that in the book. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the parents you know, are helpful, I think. Was yeah. Really helpful yeah. For me. Right. So like, so these are kind of split the difference cases, right? Like where like one parent says, I don't think that our child should stay out till midnight until they're 18. The other parent says, I think it should be 16. So as a united front, they accept 17. Right. And so neither actually believes that 17 is the appropriate age. I mean, in fact, you know, they, they would say no individually, but as, a, you know, kind of as parents, as a, as a collective, as a couple, they would say it's 17. Mm. Um, and so what, what we're invited to conclude about these sorts of cases is that you have a group level belief state, but there's no individual who instantiates it. So you have to be an inflationary theorist, right? Yeah, if yeah. you think that it makes sense to say that there can be a group belief or group knowledge where no individual member possesses it, you have to be an inflationary theorist. So that's how we get to inflationism. Very, very, very few epistemologists then go on to tell us the mechanics. I think they really are thinking, we'll save that for the meta metaphysicians okay. or the philosophers of mind. Sure. What we're really here to show you is that from an epistemological point of view, it makes sense to say that there is a group level state where there's no individual, individual state. And just metaphysically, that necessitates that the group is over and above then the individuals because there's no reductive or you know supervenience base yeah upon which the higher level you know the group level phenomenon supervenes or you know kind of reduces to yeah what, what would uh, uh what would a deflationist say about the the parent case 
the deflationary oh so yeah. the deflationary theorist is just going to deny that that's group belief i mean okay. so the deflationary theorist or that that's group knowledge or anything like that i mean the parent case is a little bit tricky because we're not really talking about like what's the knowledge the knowing state uh, but there are other cases like that so hmm. let's just let's just re- restrict our, our 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 comments here to believe um the deflationary i mean so so i'm not myself a full-blown deflationary theorist right. I, I try to kind of walk this kind of line because i think that there are groups are agents epistemic agents in particular in their own right but i do think that there has to be an anchoring base so i'm not a full-blown inflation with respect to certain phenomena not assertion right. and lies which i have something else to say about um so what I would say in this kind of case is that the groups don't the, the group actually doesn't believe that it's 17. They've accepted this proposition. Um and then in the knowledge case, I would say that with, with, with respect to some of the cases, that they don't know that P, they're in a position to know that P. Um, or um they, you know, kind of have available to them evidence that piece. So there's, so I would say different things in different cases, mm-hmm. but in most of these cases, I just don't in any way feel the pull of attributing the belief in the case. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, in, in much the same way, like, so I think the parent case is similar to like the juror case, right? Yeah. Where it asks to imagine a case where all of the jurors accept a particular proposition on the basis of the admissible evidence. So the admissible evidence points to not guilty, um, but they all on the basis of inadmissible evidence personally believe in guilt, right? So what we're invited to conclude in that case is that the jury as a collective believes that the that the defendant is not guilty, but each individual member believes that he is guilty. And I'm just not in, I'm not pulled towards the conclusion of saying that the jury believes that the innocent is that the, the, that the defendant is is not guilty. I'm inclined to describe that as they delivered the verdict not yeah. guilty. They judged not guilty. They accept the proposition not guilty. So I think there's a lot of very familiar language to us hmm. um, for explaining what's happening in those cases that doesn't invoke group group belief. Yeah. Yeah, I, I probably should have brought this up a little bit earlier, but um, Dr. Lackey, what what do we mean by group? Um, I know because I, I read your book, but um, it can for those just just tuning in here, um, who who counts as in the group or out of the group? Uh, you, you did a great job with talking about uh, I forgot the exact specifics, but like the left-handed uh, students at Northwestern, and it's like they're not really intentionally joining this group, which would be different to like a chess club maybe or something. Can you just help us out real quick before we jump in even deeper? So I think there's a lot of groups and I, I actually try to be fairly inclusive. I mean, mm-hmm. so one of the things I do think that we, we, we all, even those, so some people are going to really be talking about, um, I think very highly structured, organized groups. So imagine if you're coming to the collective epistemology literature and you think that what is sort of essential or the most important about a group is that they engage in collective deliberation, then you're going to probably be more interested in structured yeah. kinds of groups. You're probably, because, you know, kind of think about, um, I mean, I might kind of do a survey on campus of all kind of left-handed Northwestern students and kind of aggregate that data. 
and then say, left-handed Northwestern students do not think that there are enough left-handed desks in the classroom. So I'm, I'm talking about a group, left-handed Northwestern students, yeah. um, but left-handed Northwestern students don't engage in any sort of collective deliberation, right? I mean, they're not, unless I put them all in a room and say, right. hey, talk amongst yourselves about, you know, the situation here. Um, so that kind of group might be quite different from like the Supreme Court, which engages in collective deliberation all the time, or a jury who um, who goes to the to the you know kind of who, who you know kind of goes into the you know the um, jury room to to deliberate about a case. Um, so I think there's like a lot of different kinds of cases. There are also corporations which are structured in some ways, but also kind of like. Um, you know, there's a lot of like different members. And so there's no, I mean, you can have a corporation that has like a branch in Tokyo and one in Chicago and one in yeah. Paris. And so, you know, there also a, a group of that sort is not going to be kind of sitting around a conference table talking. So um, in general, I, I kind of, you know, and, and, you know, I just kind of try to lay my cards on the table and say, I'm interested in groups such that we can hold them responsible for their behavior. Yeah. So I kind of come at this, a, a lot of those um, are, I do think that there is something interestingly different about groups that have the capacity to engage in collective deliberation and those that do not. Mm -hmm. um, but more importantly, what I'm motivated by in this project are the kinds of groups that we can hold responsible. Um, and so um that's that's a really loose notion, right? Right? Because like think about the people um who were involved in um the attack on the Capitol, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, in some respects, um, you know, can we hold that group responsible in any sort of meaningful way, or do we have to look at particular individuals? You know, when we think about and I bring that up as an example because sometimes groups end up forming even on the spot, right? You might think right. of a group of protesters who all came from very different parts of life and like there's no like kind of structure, they're not engaging in any sort of collective deliberation. But three hours in, they might actually be the sort of group that we would want to hold responsible because they've had conversations, they've made some decisions about how they're going to proceed yeah. um, and so on. So um, I think just the most important thing for me is that we look at groups um, through this lens of being able to hold them responsible. Yeah. I think that's, that's interesting. Uh, and I like the broad tent thing too, because yeah. the more sp specific you get, the less, uh, applications I think it can have. And so in, in having a, a broad swath, you could also hold, you could hold a corporation responsible or uh, the, the group of janitors within the corporation who plot to, you know, kill the CEO or something, because that's a different group, but it's still in the group, but not everyone in the whole corporation is responsible for that. Yeah. It just, it seems like you, you would need a case by case to specify the actual, um, the group involved. Uh, so, so that, the innocent are not being held responsible or culpable for, for the crimes of the, the guilty. Right. Really yeah. 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 So, so you're, um, well, actually I wanted to go over a couple of your arguments. Um, again, I appreciate you going through all this because I know when you, when you write a book, it's like, you're so deep into the literature and then time goes by and then someone has you on a, on a podcast and says, Hey, can you just re re all this stuff for you? So I really appreciate you, um, doing another deep dive into this work again. I thought maybe we could go over, uh, if it's on the top of your mind here, some reasons uh, like contra-inflationary approach and then contra-deflationary. You have this manipulation of evidence problem for the 
inflationary uh, approach. Can you do, you, do you still have that up there? Can you lay that out for us? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the things that's really interesting about inflationary theorists is that um, they all, all of the views really gravitate towards this idea of joint acceptance. Mm-hmm. And you see this model with respect to belief, you see this with respect to justified belief, which is kind of interesting, but um, it's because they talk about jointly accepting reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but this kind of, this, this, this voluntary act that group members engage in really provides the basis for a lot of these inflationary views. So, so to take a step back, what is group belief? What does it mean to say that a group believes that P? For many, not all, but for many inflationary theorists, uh, in fact, I would almost say most, although there's the whole judgment aggregation side of things. So I'm kind of leaving that to one side for now. But for many um, inflationary theorists, what that amounts to is um, the, the, the operative members, and by operative members, I mean the members who have like some sort of decision-making authority with respect to the question at issue, yeah. the operative members jointly accept the proposition that P. And so like, let's go back to the parents. What happens in such a case is that like neither believes that P. That's, that's not really what's, what matters, but they together as a couple say, okay, look, we together as this child's parents are going to jointly accept that 17 is the age at which she can stay out till midnight. And so, um, and and the jury, the jurors are doing something very similar. And so um, this leads to the the positive view that a lot of inflationary theories, theorists espouse. And that's that um, group belief just really does amount to, um, the joint acceptance of a proposition with with some kind of complications, but none of them, th- th- that really is the heart of the view, okay. yeah. um, is this joint acceptance. And um, I raised some problems for this view, which I think broadly I put under the heading of the, the manipulation, you know, the pro- you know, that there's this problematic manipulation of evidence that is allowed on such a view. And um, what this amounts to is that you can... Um, so, so so then we also see this with respect to the justification side of things, right? Mm-hmm. On the justification side, you can um, jointly accept reasons, and those reasons then become the reasons that the group has for believing that piece. So then justification can come apart too, yeah. because you can jointly accept reasons for believing something. Um, and that explains the admissible evidence, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're jointly accepting a subset of reasons for deliberation quad jurors, but you don't accept that kind of subset of, of you have a broader evidential basis as individuals that yeah. includes the inadmissible evidence. And so what ends up happening is, um, I think on these views, um, you can fail to jointly accept evidence that you ought to accept, and you can ex- illegitimately accept evidence that you shouldn't accept. And then you end up with this really problematic result that groups can um, be justified um, or at least have reasons available to them that they shouldn't have available to them from an epistemic point yeah. of view and fail to have evidence or reasons available to them that they clearly should. So let's just take Philip Morris, you know, very classic example here. Um, on this view, Philip Morris doesn't have reason to believe that smoking is dangerous 
or you know poses a, a threat to people's health unless they jointly accept those reasons right right individual members members might but philip morris doesn't and so obviously why couldn't philip morris just say hey we're just not going to kind of jointly accept that as good evidence right we're going to yeah. go look at these like little these rogue publications that say that it that it that it is reliable that's what we're going to jointly accept as our reasons or our evidence and so you end up with philip morris not having a reason to believe that smoking is dangerous um or and not, not of, being held accountable to, how do you hold them accountable if they don't believe that they were telling a lie or they don't have the reasons available to them. Right, right. Um, and so um, I think that this is, I mean, to my mind, like a very, very, very serious problem for inflationary theorists that have an epistemological dimension to it. Because once you start putting things like evidence available to people and reasons for belief, once you start making that subject to the the absolute will of individual members, well, then you just open up the door for practical and, hmm. and financial and you know all sorts of totally epistemically irrelevant factors to be dictating when and why people accept reasons. And then they end up having these epistemological assessments of being justified or reasonable that wildly diverge from what I think they ought to be held, you know, kind of how they ought to be assessed. Yeah. I wonder, so like Philip Morse, if they if they could stack the deck with operative members that are ignorant, uh, who who don't have the evidence, like, and then it seems like there might be a sororities kind of paradox in how many of the operative members have to have that belief, and someone could stack the deck if they said, hey, we don't want to tell a group lie, but I also don't want to acknowledge that this stuff's bad for you, so I'm going to bring in a bunch of uh, people on the board who are operative members, but they have no clue about any of this stuff. Maybe they're mm -hmm. cognitively limited or you burn for a different part of the world or whatever it is, such that they can have like plausible deniability because they didn't reach the threshold to uh, have, I don't know, group assent or something like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So that, so, so good. I mean, I, I think that that's the, the the question you're raising now is is really kind of a problem. I think more for deflationary theories. Although okay. I think that it actually impacts everyone. Yeah. So what? So so I I guess I just want to say like I think that trying to stack the decks by who your members are is something that every single view is going to have an issue with. Okay. Because let's think about like inflationary views. Mm -hmm. Stacking the decks about who's going to jointly accept what can determine what people end up believing. And for the deflationary theorists, what individual members believe anchors what the group believes. So you can yeah. stack the decks by bringing on people who who believe that smoking is in fact safe. Yeah. Um, so I think this is something that cuts across all views in the epistemology of groups. But I don't think that should be that surprising. I mean, like, I think that, of course, like, group makeup is going to deter is going to have an impact on what groups believe. Yeah. So I myself don't think that that's a really serious problem. Bringing on board a whole bunch of operative members, that actually is, is I think, a little bit trickier than we might think it is. I mean, like, it'd be really weird to bring on board people who know nothing about Philip Morris and make them like the CEO, you know yeah. what I mean? So, yeah. so I think that it's a little bit tricky. But I think that in general, your point is, 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 is exactly right. But I think it affects everyone. I don't think anyone has a real advantage here because anytime we bring on board people with different attitudes, it's going to change the, 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 the it, it will, has the potential to change 
the um, the believing states of the of the corresponding groups. That's good. That's good. You just showed your your practical uh, philosophical acumen there, which is really good because I wanted to go hypothetical, but in in reality, no one is bringing in a ignorant operative uh, to to be the CEO. That that makes total sense. That's a great point. Um, all right. So how about so we we beat up on the uh, inflationary folks a little bit. How about uh, the deflationary folks? You have this problem, uh, this group justification paradox. Yeah, so um, so I'm going to give like a really streamlined version of this problem because it gets kind of it's you know kind of um, it has like a fair bit of detail in the book. Um, so the streamlined version of the problem is that um, you know the deflationary theories, and I and I work with a with a, a a view that has was recently defended by Alvin Goldman, which I think is is really intuitive and like a, a really helpful um, starting place for thinking about deflationism, and that's um that there's a kind of very intuitive way of thinking about group justification. And that's that if you increase the individual members who, who justifiably hold a belief, mm -hmm. then you thereby increase the group's level of justification. Uh, this is very intuitive, right? Yeah. And I think that it comes from this idea, I think Goldman calls it transmission, that individual justifiedness is transmitted to, to the group level. So it just kind of like, you can just imagine it sort of flowing over to the group. So you just keep throwing in, I mean, kind of picking up on our early, the earlier part of our conversation where you we were talking about adding members to the group, right? Yeah. Who kind of hold. So if you just keep adding members to your group that, that hold a belief with justification, then the group level of justification is just going to continue to go up. And that's, I think, a really intuitive starting point. And in many respects, that is to some extent like the heart of a simple deflation deflationary views deflationary theorist view is that like group justifiedness really just does boil down to individual justifiedness um but one of the things that i i kind of um discuss at, at some length in my book is um how this picture, I think, is much more complicated. Yeah. And it's much more complicated because when you bring in individual, when you continue to add individual members, you're also adding individual, like, kind of reasons for why they hold that initial belief. So mm -hmm. I believe that P because of Q. You believe that P because of R. Someone else believes that P because of T, right? I mean, and we can all believe that P, but for very different reasons. I might believe it on the basis of testimony. You might believe it because you saw it. Someone else might believe it because they, you know, kind of, um, you know, inferred it. So like, we all can believe that P and we can all believe that P with like a robust level of justification, but we might have very different reasons for believing that P. And once you start noticing this point, it becomes very easy to massively complicate the picture. Yeah. And that's kind of what I do, right? And you, I massively complicate the picture by arguing that once you see that people can believe that P for different reasons, those reasons themselves can conflict. Yeah. And so I can believe that P because of Q and you can believe that P because of like not Q, right? Or something like that. Right, right. And those two reasons can, can add a very deep level of incoherence to our overall belief framework as a group. Yeah. And so what this shows is that um, that the complication of those reasons when they conflict 
can um, either undermine the basis for justification or add what's called defeaters to the justification, you know, the justificatory framework. And defeaters defeat the justification um, for belief. So what I show is that like you can increase the level of justification, you can add more individuals, and the level of overall justification in the group can go down. Yeah. And that's and that's why it's a paradox. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I thought that was that's so interesting because because that was your problem with Gold. I know you're you're following Goldman, but Goldman's kind of leaves room for what you just talked about for this paradox to arise that evidence evidence isn't just all good. And and you give this condition as we get into your uh, your account that it has to be coherent. And right. when you have coherence, then you can have increased justification in the group. But if you just let it wild wild west, then who knows? That's exactly right. And I think that um, you know one of the things that I really like about um, kind of thinking deeply about Goldman's view is that it is just so intuitive to start with. It's so intuitive to think like, of course, more justification is better. More is better, right? Um, And one of the things that I think I I do through complicating that picture is showing that more is not always epistemologically better. More evidence is oftentimes worse off, right? And it's very obvious. I'm not, I I don't think that this is like a a super deep point once we kind of pause and reflect on it. Of course, sometimes more evidence is worse, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that it's really magnified when you're talking about groups because you're talking about so the possibility of so many different individuals believing things for so many different reasons. Right, right. Okay, so then um, what you do, you, you kind of throw a wrench into both systems and then you say, yours is, is kind of uh, in the middle. I wonder if you would see it leaning uh, more deflationary, but you, you also complicate things because you're you're more inflationary when it comes to assertion and lies and then more deflationary when it comes to beliefs. Is that right? Uh, so I'm... Yeah. So uh, what I would say is I'm a full-blown inflationary theorist about group lies and group um, assertions. Um, And I think I have a principled distinction for when I'm a full-blown inflationary theorist and when I'm not. Mm -hmm. And I'm a full-blown inflationary theorist when you can grant another agent the authority to um, constitute other things on your behalf through their own actions. So when someone can kind of fully be a proxy agent for you, and by proxy agent, I really mean you're doing it constitutes like my doing it, right? That's what it means for you to be a proxy agent. You're doing something on my behalf. I'm sorry. Yeah, no. You're doing something on my behalf um, is just um, to, to, for for me to do it. Right. And so when you can, so I think that I can grant someone the authority to assert on my behalf. Mm -hmm. And so given that, um, I think that that gives gives rise to these situations in which um, someone, um, you have cases where um, a group asserts that P, but no individual member asserts that P or has even asserted. And so in that sense, it really is the group that asserts that P, right? So you can imagine like the chair of my department Mm -hmm. asserting on our behalf, right? Um, That we want to hire candidate X for the job. Now you might just say, well, this is just straightforward. Like the group's assertion, um, you know, kind of is just reducible to the chair's assertion, 
right? Mm -hmm. um, but I actually don't think in these sorts of cases, the chair is asserting, um, because I don't think that any of the norms governing assertion govern the chair's you know, kind of what the chair is doing in that case. So think about some of the norms governing assertion, sincerity, you know, assert that P if and only if you know that P, assert that P if and only if, if you believe that P, assert that all of these norms that are out there, none of those apply to the chair. He shouldn't assert that P if and only if he believes that P. What he should do is report the view of the group. Right, right, right. Assert that P if and only if you know that P. We don't care whether he knows that P. We care whether he is representing the, the department accurately. And so I mm -hmm. actually think in those sorts of cases, he is his, his, his assertion, you know, kind of what he's doing is not an individual assertion. The chair is not asserting as an individual. Yeah. It is a group assertion. And so in that case, I'm an inflationary theorist, like a fairly robust inflationary theorist. Um, when it comes to things like belief, knowledge, and justification, my view is a little bit more complicated. You asked whether I lean more towards deflationary or inflationary. And, and I would like to say neither. I yeah. would like to say that um, while there's a very clear deflationary component in that I do anchor my my note, my accounts of group belief and group justified belief and group knowledge in the individual states of group members. Mm -hmm. um, I think that the evidential relations that arise only at the level of the group make groups epistemic agents in their own right. Uh, and so I think that those evidential relations are absolutely key to us assessing groups. Mm -hmm. It's all of those evidential relations that massively complicated the deflationary, the deflationary theorist picture. And so those evidential relations that arise at the group level are really, really, really epistemically um, central to my project. And that's why I call my view an epistemic agent account, because there's a distinctive kind of epistemic agency that arises at that group level through all of these evidential relations. Yeah. In your group um, epistemic agent account, you, you say it's not strictly summative and it's not strictly non-summative. Right. Uh, and, and for those listening, summative is, is everyone has to believe it's the sum of all the... Right. And so it's a... Well, I wrote it down here. Group agent... Uh, it's based off your group agent account, and then you move from there to your uh, group uh, epistemological or uh, epistemological agent account. Um, a group C or a group G believes that P, if and only if one, there is significant percentage of percentage of G's operative members who believe that P, and two, are such that adding together the bases of their beliefs, that P yields a belief set. That is not substantively incoherent, and so that's that really important criteria that you developed from Goldman. That uh, so you don't fall into the group justification paradox. Uh, two, you, it has to be coherent. Uh, but what, with with one, the criteria in one, a significant percentage of G's operative members who believe that P um, is that case by case. How do we determine the significant percentage of the operative members? Yeah, I try to be really, um, I try to not be committal on that because, mm -hmm. you know, you're going to have some groups who are like the parents, right? Yeah. So, so who are the operative members? Like both. Right? I mean, you're not going to have that, that, you know, it doesn't make sense to talk about um, only one member of that group being <laughs> operative or only one right. member of that group. Like both have to, to have to have to. So a significant percentage of operative members with the parents is both. Yeah. Um, with, um, with a, 
you know, with other groups, I mean, like when we're talking about corporations with like tens of thousands of members or, you know, like um, it's just really, I I think it's going to, you're going to have a very different kind of, so I wouldn't want to say like 76% (laughs) because I mean, like, first of all, that just is, it's just really arbitrary and surely false. Um, But also I think that it's just going to really vary on, on the basis of the structure of the group, the policies and procedures of the group, um, how we determine who the operative members are. So what I really am trying to just kind of gesture towards in that condition is that um, operative members need to believe it. And, you know, um, this is not an inflationary view. You do need some of the key members who believe it. And how many of those is really going to be determined by features that are specific to to the groups themselves. Okay. I just, um, because it's been so practical, this is one of the first epistemology books I've read where I've, I've thought about the pra- practical application. I thought maybe Dr. Lackey needs to be in the courtroom helping them figure some of this stuff out. I thought it was so cool to think about, <laughs> but when I, I don't know who would, de- who would determine that when it comes to a group, um, that'd be, that'd be really, really tough. I guess the lawyers would have to make a case for saying, Hey, um, 51% of the operative members believe that. And therefore, you you should be held responsible and um, or responsible for a lie. Of course, whatever the action is, they need to be held responsible. But now we're going to penalize you even worse for lying about it because we've determined that a, a operative number, a, a certain number of operative members believe mm-hmm. that it was a lie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I, I I think you're right. I mean, it's like I think that there are going to be clear cases over here and yeah. clear cases over here, and as with most things in life, the ones mm-hmm. that fall here are going to have to be adjudicated. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, I, I didn't want to impose kind of like I said an artificial um, and, and and surely misleading. Right. Um, kind of criterion for, for this gray space that's just going to actually need to be, like I said, just adjudicated. Yeah. Well, that's, that's so helpful. And I'm, I'm glad you, you didn't do that too, because um, yeah, I, I think it, it's a, a broader framework, which is uh, needs to be taken up and can be taken more seriously and actually applied in, in courtrooms, which is really, would be really cool to see people using this in trial and, and talking about groups because like we said in the beginning, groups lie to us a lot and they should be held responsible and accountable for that. Um, Dr. Lecky, as we finish up here, um, I, I wanted to see if we could pull some threads together from other uh, disciplines, uh, sub-disciplines in philosophy. Do you, are you familiar with um, which came first, epistemology of groups or like um, philosophy of action, um, group action type stuff? Do you, was one of those, did one of those give rise to the other? Cause I, I kind of know more about, uh, the action. I had a guy talk uh, about group action and stuff like that, but uh, yours was the first that I came across with group group knowledge. Well, definitely like group intentionality, which is directly connected up with group action, has a very robust literature okay. and is very well developed. And there's a lot of different, there's like shared agency and collective okay. agency and shared intention and collective. I mean, and all of that, that's a very, very, very robust um, and well-worked out body of literature in contrast to collective epistemology, which is much um newer and less developed. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and uh, a, a question about that too. So is this, does this fit rightly in collective epistemology or, or, and is there a sharp distinction between sh- social epistemology in this? I know you talked about those in the book. I wasn't able to get into that section as, as much as I wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, 
do you find a, a hard and fast line be, between the two? So I think that social epistemology is just a very, very, very broad label. Um, I mean, I do social epistemology, which I think includes a lot of different sub areas. So I'm currently working in legal epistemology, which I think is an area of social epistemology. I do work in applied epistemology, which looks at very specific issues like the epistemology of false confessions, for instance, which might be applied epistemology. Um, And collective epistemology, the epistemology of collective entities, I think is just a sub area of of social epistemology. So I think social epistemology includes a lot. Um, and collective epistemology is just a more specific kind of kind of area. Okay. And and so your book, would you say, um, so since social is really broad, would you categorize this as a collective, a working collective epistemology? Yes. It's a work in collective epistemology and it's also a work in social epistemology. Yeah. Right. yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's that's so cool. Um it, it's it was so so fascinating so fun to talk with you um the book covers so much more we could have done you know just a billion of these um but thanks so much for all of your time uh you you do so much i wonder if you you might say a word about uh what you do with with uh prisons yeah so um i founded a um a prison education program at Northwestern. It's the only degree granting program in Illinois that provides a comprehensive liberal arts education. So um, many years ago, I went into prisons and just started teaching one-off philosophy classes that were not credit granting and didn't add up to, you know, kind of um, be degrees. And now we're offering um, about 36 courses a year in um, in prisons in Illinois um, through Northwestern. So we're offering a broad range of courses. You know, I think just in the last couple of quarters, we've offered courses in, you know, television writing and, um, you know, drawing and thermodynamics and history <laughs> and psychology. And um, so our students are getting um, you know, as, as, as robust of a Northwestern education as our on-campus students receive, um, you know, except when we have like kind of, you know, kind of constraints that, that, that you know, that um, arise because of, you know, the students being incarcerated. Yeah. Um, but, um, but we launched, a, the full program launched in the fall of 2018, and I'm now the director of that program. That's awesome. Yeah. So I, I just wanted to bring that up to, to further emphasize the the practical application of philosophy to real world problems, uh, to life, to educating people. I think that's awesome. I love what you do. And um, I'd love to have you back on, talk about some more of your work. I, I think it's really fascinating. Uh, is there a place, Dr. Lucky, where people can find you if they wanted to see more of your stuff? Um, yeah, I have a website. So if you just went, if you just went and found me at Northwestern University um, in the philosophy department, you could, you know, um, find, you know, access to my research and some of my work in prisons um, all on my website. Awesome. Yeah, I'll put a, a link in the description here so people can find that more easily. Uh, well, thanks so much, Dr. Lucky. This has been really, really fun. Uh, that's going to have to do it for now, folks. Uh, but but stay tuned for some more uh, coming up. Uh, this has been Parker's Pensies. And as always, all glory to God.